This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, businesses in the Solomon Islands provinces struggled to run after their internet and mobile cable was sliced by passing ship. With the tourism industry, yeah, it's, it's really bad like, for the business. And we head to Timor-Leste to find out how preparations for upcoming elections are going. And off the coast of Medang province in Papua New Guinea, divers looking for remains of old World War II servicemen battle the elements. So we actually had to pull the divers out of the water quickly and leave the area because it was a full magma ash displacement. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, to Vanuatu, where the Prime Minister has thrown aside what he calls absurd accusations that he is undermining the country's independence by strengthening ties with Australia. Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsakau faces a motion of no confidence set to be debated on Friday. And among the opposition's chief concerns are the government's foreign engagements, including signing a security deal with Australia. But as Mr Kalsakau told our reporter, Liam Fox. He believes his government remains solid and he won't be removed as Prime Minister. History has uh, shown that governments uh, have been changed uh, on whims but at the present time uh, we had a caucus meeting and uh, we are very confident with the numbers that we have. We will have a cross-check meeting before Parliament reconvenes in the afternoon. I'm, I'm, I'm quite confident at the present time. As you mentioned, it's a a pretty common feature of uh, politics in Vanuatu. Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Does it distract the government from, you know, doing the business of the day? Yes and no, because um, whilst members of parliament uh, can have uh, rights to question the conduct of government at any given time, but there must be be context. There must be uh, reasons that are compelling on the mover of the motion in the seconder. And you would say that's not the case in this instance? Well, I'm, I'm still uh, trying to come uh, come to grips with um, some sincerity in, 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 in the, uh, the contentions that, that have been put forward. To the particulars uh, of the motion, uh, one of the opposition's arguments is that, quote, the government's foreign engagements are undermining Vanuatu's independence and impartiality. What do you say to that? <laughs> yes, uh, I mean, I, I easily uh, scoff at that because um, it's business as usual. There hasn't been any, uh, uh, even the slightest impression that we're being uh, Sabotaged or tabor taken over by uh, you know partners from overseas. Uh, the um, Council of Ministers still reserves the right to have this matter put before it and uh, and resolved upon before it comes to Parliament for uh, ratification. So uh, uh, any such uh, assertion uh, that uh, the the this this brings about uh, a compromise to. Uh, the independence and sovereignty of Vanuatu is quite absurd. And you're talking there about the security agreement you signed with uh, Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong late last year. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. Um, at the present time, we're lacking in a, in, a, in, a, in a coherent foreign policy. We we say we are friends to everyone, 
and enemies to none. But well, you know, what what does that really entail? As long as uh, a process uh, is uh, carefully scrutinised and processed towards bringing into law uh, relationships uh, with with governments, then I, I don't see any reason for the for the opposition to be be, be concerned about uh, sovereignty at this at the present time. What about the argument, though, that the the security agreement, uh, even though it's yet to be ratified by Parliament, it does undermine Vanuatu's traditional uh, non-aligned stance, its membership of the non-aligned movement. Well, well, well what does that mean in in uh, in in in, in, in uh, you know the, the context of today's uh, uh, landscape, where you know uh, climate change uh, has become. Uh, the very serious threat that is uh, threatening the sovereignty of uh, nations, and uh, we have security issues, uh, uh, the concerns around the Pacific, where we we need to to make sure that we receive the attention that we require for the for us to uh, maintain our sovereignty and uh, uh, answer the uh, the aspirations of our people. I don't see any uh, concern that the bilateral agreement that I signed with Australia uh, puts a dent on on, on that uh, that policy. You said that you know traditionally Vanuatu's foreign policy stance has been uh, friends to all, enemies to none. Does signing an agreement with uh, Australia uh, risk harming the relationship, say, with China? Because there does appear to be some kind of competition in the region at the moment for strategic friendship, if you not, will. Do you think well, that... Well, no, 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 not, not really. Not really. And I've already uh, uh, answered that question. But, 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 but now that you've brought China into the, 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 uh, the question, um, our relations uh, continue to go from strength to strength with uh, all our partners, regardless of the... Uh, the bilateral security argue, uh, agreement that we've executed with Australia. That was Vanuatu's Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsakau speaking there with our reporter Liam Fox. And we at Pacific Beach have reached out to Vanuatu's opposition to speak with us about some of their concerns and that um, motion of no confidence. We are still waiting for them to respond to our requests. <laughs> Now let's head to Timor-Leste, where in just a few days' time, the country will head to a national election and its capital is buzzing with excitement. That's the sound of voters singing and dancing at a huge campaign rally held by one of the major political parties, Fretilin, yesterday afternoon. Thousands of supporters turned out to hear from a party leader, Mari Alkatiri, who's vying to become the country's next prime minister. To hear more, our reporter Marion Farr was at the rally in Dili and joins us on the show. Good morning to you, Marion. Good morning, Priyanka. Um, so you've been on the streets there in the capital, Dili. What is the mood like on the ground just a few days before the election? 
Oh, Priyanka, it's really phenomenal. There's just so much excitement here in Dili with the election now four days away. So Timor-Leste goes to the polls on Sunday and the streets of Dili are just full of people waving flags and hanging off the back of trucks, singing and dancing and playing music and tooting their horns and just celebrating democracy. It's um, really quite an incredible atmosphere. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of creativity too. One of the best things I saw at the uh, Fretland rally yesterday was a big parade float that looked like a crocodile crawling (laughs) along the road with people standing on its back and singing um it was quite a sight and you can um i've i've posted a little video on twitter if you want to check it out but yeah there's just a real sense of fun and joy around the election here which is which is quite quite amazing to see yeah, quite amazing and quite unusual. It seems, I feel like here in Australia, at least, going to election is, can be a bit of a drudgery, um, especially in the, in the week before. Um, sounds like things were quite different um, there in Timor-Leste because you actually attended that rally we just had in, um, for, mm-hmm. for the Fretland Party, as you mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what, what was it like there? Were, were there, were there, was there anything else other than crocodiles? I, I believe the leader, Mari Alkatiri, was there. What did he have to say? Well, yes, it wasn't all just singing and dancing, although there was a lot of that. But um, uh, Mari Alkatiri gave a couple of very lengthy speeches to the crowds. Um, and he spoke about things like lifting Timor-Leste out of poverty improving education and pushing for the development of the Greater Sunrise Oil and Gas Project, which is a key issue in this election and it's um, something we'll continue to hear a lot about. Now, what is interesting about this election in particular for Timor-Leste is that it could be the last hurrah for some of the country's founding fathers like Mari Alkatiri and his main contender, Shanana Guzmau, who's the leader of the CNRT party. So both men are getting on in age. I think they're in their 60s and 70s. And so um, there there are some people who believe that this could well be their final campaign, uh, which makes them all the more desperate to win. Um, now, al seemed very confident. We had a quick chat with him and he said he's 100% certain he will win. Um, but the opinion, some opinion polls in Timor-Leste show CNRT as being the favourite. And um, if you remember uh, last year, uh, Timor-Leste held its presidential election mm. and uh, voted in a new president, uh, Jose Ramos-Horta, who is somewhat aligned with CNRT or had the backing of CNRT. And so um, based on based on that previous election, uh, there is some, some feeling that CNRT may be the favourite but uh, we'll just we'll just have to see what happens on Sunday. Yes, yes. Uh, and what about voters there, Marion? What what do they prioritise? What are they calling for? Well, at the top of voters' minds seem to be the economy, uh, jobs and education are a few main things. Now, what's really interesting yesterday uh, was just to notice how visibly young the voting mm-hmm. population is. Um, young people really were... Uh, dominated this rally that we went to. And uh, Timor-Leste's elections office estimates that 75% of voters in this election are under the age of 30, which is a huge majority when you think about it. Um, The reason for this is partly that um, about a quarter of Timor-Leste's population died during its long struggle for independence up until 2002. 
And um, now since since the country became a sov- sovereign nation, there's mm-hmm. been a big population boom. So there is, uh, there is a large uh, number of young people in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe Timor-Leste has the fastest growing population in Southeast Asia at the moment. So yes, there are a lot of young people. And another interesting thing about the election, this election, is that it will be the first time that people who were born post-independence will be able to vote. And for this cohort of people, the biggest issue really does seem to be employment. Um, A lack of job opportunities in the country means that many young people are forced to move overseas and find work to support their families, and they want that to change. They want to be able to stay in Timor-Leste and find jobs. Mm, Very, very interesting. I mean, it sounds like it could be quite an interesting vote come Sunday. Um, How close is this election likely to be, Marion? Well, it's looking like it will be a tight race. Now, I've mentioned the two major political parties, CNRT and Fretilin, uh, but there are 15 other smaller parties running in this election as well, and they could become crucial if neither party, neither major party wins an outright majority of 33 seats on Sunday. And so if that happens, the party that wins the most votes will have to enter into a coalition in order to form government. And we're likely to see there are a lot of negotiations going on in um, after the vote on Sunday. And yeah, it really, it, it'll, time will tell what will happen. So it is likely to be a close race. Yes, well, we are seeing that uh, in, unfold in um, Turkey and uh, Thailand with their close elections too. So we'll see indeed, as you said, Marion, how this will unfold. And he did point people to see the crocodile float, which I certainly want to check check out from um, Fredolin's rally. Um, you directed them to your Twitter, where I'm sure they can find other updates to Timor-Leste's um, election. Where can we find you on Twitter, Marion? So my Twitter handle is Marion Farr. It's M-A-R-I-A-N-F-A-A. Yep. And we'll be posting as much as we can. The internet um, is is a little bit patchy here <laughs> in Dili, so sometimes we're able to um, to get a good connection. And I think um, I think early in the morning is good, but um, we'll be posting as regularly as we can. Okay, well, all the best there. You'll be there um, on Sunday for the vote as well. And of course, um, listeners can also check out at ABC Pacific, where we will also be keeping updates for um, for the vote as well. Thank you so much, Marion, for joining us this morning. Thanks, Priyanka. And that was Marion Farr, reporter in Dili, East, uh, East Timor, Timor-Leste at the moment, um, covering the election, as I said, is coming up on Sunday. Internet users in provincial Solomon Islands will be offline for the next two months after the country's domestic internet cable was severed by a ship anchor. The break means families and businesses in the affected areas can't easily make phone calls or access information online. As Jan Kahoot reports, it's just the latest incident highlighting the fragility of the Pacific's submarine cables. Ashley Kotoma works on Fatboy Resort near Gizo Town on Solomon Islands, Western Province. But for the past week, the resort has had no internet and mobile phone calls have been disrupted. He's had to travel to the mainland to take care of business matters. With the tourism industry, yeah, it's, it's really bad, like, for the business. For Kingia, we have to go to Gizo, use Wi-Fi. So we have to go to Gizo because we're we on, on, on the island, on an island in, outside Gizo. 
So yeah, we have to go into town to do send emails and invoices and like that. It's really affecting the business. The Coral Sea Cable is Solomon Islands' only internet cable connecting Australia to the Solomons and Papua New Guinea. The submarine cable's main connection is to Honiara, where it branches out into the rest of the country. But just one kilometre outside of Honiara, an anchor from a stray fishing vessel smashed through the cable. Kerr Preeti is the CEO of the Solomon Submarine Cable Company. We've actually talked to the owners of this vessel before and got them to move off of uh, station when they were coming close. Uh, but this time, uh, like bad luck, bad management, they, they, they ignored the, uh, the signs. He says the damaged cable could be repaired in the next six to seven weeks. But until then, locals in the area will have to use a backup satellite connection, which is limited across the country. Mr Preeti says Solomon Islands will have to wait in line to get the break fixed. We're part of the South Pacific uh, Marine Maintenance Agreement. There's a, there's a maintenance vessel that's dedicated to this part of the world. We are like in the queue to get our fix done, and we're going to get our cable fixed probably uh, after the Tonga domestic cable gets fixed in May. So we're likely not to get the, the ship on station to do the repair until the end of June. Michael Palmer, the chief of technology at Our Telecom, which uses the cable, says some provinces are already working on a backup option. We have a micro link in place already. It was there before um, the submarine cable actually came into place. So we're using that as the backup link for Aoki. Um, with the Western region and Choiso, that is Nora and Taro, we're actually working on our backup links that are actually satellite links. And gradually and slowly, we're actually putting back services via these satellite links. Yeah. As for Ashley Kotoma at Fat Boy Resort, he's desperate to keep the business going and keep guests coming. Yeah, with phone calls, we couldn't make phone calls today. I the backup, I'm not sure what it is, but we can make calls like in, in 30 minutes and then it goes out. That was Ashley Karma from Fatboy Resorts in Solomon Islands, Western Province, ending that report from Jan Code. From across the seas and right around the region, ABC Australia is connecting you like never before with a new voice in news, politics, sport and events. From Fiji to Kiribati, PNG to French Polynesia, our team of trusted reporters bring you everything Pacific and nothing that's not. Join me, Talia Olatia. What matters to the Pacific matters to us. Watch the Pacific Thursday nights at 7, PNG time on ABC Australia. It's that time here on Pacific Beach where we find out what's making news around the region. And as always, we're joined by Kyle Evans to do just that. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Um, now, we've been discussing here on Pacific Beach and well, a lot of a lot of places are discussing the upcoming visit by U.S. President Joe Biden to Papua New Guinea to meet with Pacific leaders. But it appears that might not happen. Is that right? Kyle. That's right. Yeah, a much talked about visit, uh, which was scheduled for later this month, and it uh, it looks like it's not on the cards anymore. And President Joe Biden will return to the U.S. immediately after the G7 summit to focus on an unfolding debate in Washington around the U.S. debt ceiling. 
Um, so that's according to a, to a release by Reuters, which literally just came through as we were preparing for the show. And uh, it also follows a statement from the White House that had initially only said his trip to Australia uh, was in question. So, yeah, really surprising development given given the hype uh, around this visit and, uh, and the major security pact that's intended to be signed. Yes, indeed. Yes, that security pact between the United States and mm. Papua New Guinea. We did have some um, inklings about what it might be about. But I understand that there's now concerns about some details in that security pact. Why is that? Yeah, there's some worry that PNG will be dragged into the militarization of the Pacific uh, if it signs a security pact uh, with the US. That's according to RNZ, who has actually seen a draft copy uh, of the agreement. And the document outlines the terms and conditions uh, for US access to various PNG sea and airports. So it would basically allow US aircraft, vehicles and vessels to move freely within the territory. Uh, and use PNG's facilities for things like training, exercises, manoeuvres, as well as refuelling and surveillance. So um, potentially it could be a pretty confronting sight for for onlookers and local fishermen to see that kind of activity going on. Potentially, yes. Um, interesting to hear that report from uh, Renzi, uh, yeah, say, you know, alleging that there are some concerns um, and that they've seen a copy of that draft agreement or a draft copy of that agreement. Um, but yes, I wonder if it is all a moot point if that um, if President Joe Biden decides not, uh, as is being reported by Reuters, not to come to Papua New Guinea um, and therefore, I guess, not sign the deal, though perhaps he might send a deputy um Maybe indeed um, we might have Vice President Kamala Harris mm-hmm. join be in the Pacific. Who knows? Um, and yes, that that date I think it was he was supposed to arrive on March the twenty oh May the twenty second. Sorry, I do know what month we're in, um, which is just you know five days away. So cutting it very very close. Um, and of course we also have that upcoming visit from which we understand is still going ahead from India's leader um, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who yes we do understand will be there um, along with other Pacific leaders, I guess. So, yes, shame that Joe Biden won't be able to make the this, the um, the meeting, perhaps, but we'll see what comes out of it, and particularly when it comes to the security deal. Um, now, let's stay in Papua New Guinea, Kyle, because it appears police will not be allowing public demonstrations that are still continuing over um, Foreign Minister Justin Chichenko and, and that saga that we've covered here. Can you give us a, a brief update of that or brief, um, you know, summary of that saga and also what the police are saying about those um, demonstrations? Yeah, so it's, it's a bit of an interesting one. So the chief of police in the National Capital District uh, said police operations in the city will be ramped up and police will be on heightened alert from uh, from tomorrow. That's according to a statement released by the police and follows rumours of a planned protest circulating on social media. So it's understood a group calling themselves the Coalition of Concerned Citizens delivered a letter to the police station uh, requesting approval for a march and, uh, and these protests are, of course, sparked by those comments made by Mr. Mr. Kachenko, uh, where he used a derogatory term uh, against people criticising his daughter during that King's coronation, infamous King's coronation visit now. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, yeah, there have been protests that call, have been calling for him to step to step aside, which he has done, and um, continuous protests to ask him to um, resign. He did say that he was stepping aside to allow the leaders um, to sort of meet and um, for that to have happen scandal-free. So I guess it, it's all related um, there in Papua New Guinea politics at the moment. It all, it all has a thread going through. 
Um, now, what, on what grounds can police stop the protests and demonstrations, Kyle? Because you did say that that's what they're, they're saying. Um, I imagine there's free speech rights there in Papua New Guinea. Aren't, isn't protesting legal? Yeah, look, I, I imagine so. And But according to the superintendent, uh, organisers of the march apparently have not submitted uh, the request within the required seven-day period, and they also cannot guarantee that the march will be peaceful as well. So uh, police, obviously, they're concerned about things like looting, um, public disorder to ensure and things like that. Um, there's also a social impact which they've taken into consideration. That, that includes disruptions to education and businesses um, that have been taken into account as well. So, um, I mean, I was going to say not to mention an impending trip by Joe Biden, but that's not happening anymore. So, well, yeah. As is being reported by Reuters. Um, yes, indeed. Yes. I guess whenever you have leaders, leaders gathering, um, we do understand Pacific leaders will also be there. Um, you know, there's, there's the understanding that law enforcement will be cranked up. But you, you also understand that demonstrations will happen. It's never per- perfect. I know in any place when there's a big meeting of leaders, you sort of understand that protests and demonstrations happen. And as long as they're done peacefully, I can imagine that there, there shouldn't be in a democracy any, any concerns around that. Um, but yes, it sounds like um, police are, uh, have decided to not take the risk um, and, and put, it, put a stop to any demonstrations at all um, or protests, particularly when it comes to this this issue of Foreign Minister Kachenko. Um, if you are listening in Papua New Guinea, perhaps you had planned to take to the streets and, and have your voice heard. Um, what do you think about the police's actions here? Um, get in touch at ABC Pacific. Um, we'd love to hear what you say um, or what you think. Um, and now to some sporting news. The second match day of the OFC Championship Champions League tournament starts today. Who exactly is playing, Kyle? Yeah, so we've got a couple of big Group A games, uh, which could potentially shape the semi-final fixture. So we've got the Solomon Warriors. They'll face off with Samoan champions Lupe Ole Soega, uh, while Suva FC will meet Auckland FC. Um, Suva and Auckland are both undefeated, so they're currently first and second at the top of their group. So they'll enter the match uh, with, a, with a bit of breathing space. Meanwhile, the Warriors and Lupe are still searching uh, for their first win. So... Yeah, if I had to pick one, I'd say the Warriors would likely be uh, likely be favourites. They're having pushed Auckland uh, in the first game. They're actually up 1-0 um, at halftime, ended up losing 3-1. But a win for them would set up a uh, potentially interesting showdown uh, with Suva this weekend, which might actually um, yeah, sort of determine who goes through to the semifinal. And um, Kyle, I've got to issue an apology. I often I try and feign my um, sporting prowess, or at least my knowledge here on, on Pacific Beat. Um, but I think one got away a couple of news wraps ago where I mistakenly said that the Fijian team, um, um, their, their chances at Olympic qualification were in doubt when actually they have gone through, they have qualified for the Olympic sevens. <laughs> Is that right, Kyle? I completely got it wrong. Oh, no, that's, that's, that's perfectly okay. But, uh, but yeah, that's right. They have qualified. Uh, the overall results at the weekend's World Rugby 7 Series secured their place at the Paris Games, despite the fact they didn't actually do all that well, but they did They did enough uh, beating Germany and Uruguay in the quarterfinals and semifinals for that, that ninth, ninth place, place finish to, uh, to cement a spot. Yeah, wonderful stuff for Fiji. And I do apologise to listeners and to you, Carl, for misunderstanding <laughs> what had happened over the weekend. They have qualified. Don't No need to... Um, to sound the alarm, um, and we will. Well, we can't wait, I guess, for Fiji to be in the Olympics. No, and that's, see what happens. that's that's right. Yeah, look, it's obviously been a tough Another year gold. for them, but uh, but look, they've got there, and anything can happen. Yes, indeed. Well, Carl, thank you for the stories. Thank you, Priyanka. 
Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. So many times I would run to the police station. They would just tell me, sorry, we can't help you. It's domestic affairs. And I'm like, life is at stake. Why can't you help? So join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. Wednesdays at 3.30 p.m. PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Wednesday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Now let's head to Papua New Guinea, where a daring recovery mission carried out more than 60 metres below the water surface may have uncovered the remains of 11 airmen who were lost off the coast of Papua New Guinea. The successful mission means that thousands of other bodies that lay buried in the Pacific after the Second World War might now be within reach. Kyle Evans with this report. It was a mission fraught with danger. On March 11th, 1944, an American Air Force unit paid the ultimate price when their plane was shot down by Japanese forces in waters off PNG, killing everyone on board. The B-24 aircraft was called Heaven Can Wait, nicknamed after an angel painted on its nose. It would wait 80 years before it was seen again. In... 2016, there is a family group uh, that is very active in our family research of one of the crew members on board the aircraft. They turned all of their research over to one of our partner groups called Project Recover. Underwater archaeologist Greg Stratton works for the US Defence in its Prisoner of War and Missing in Action Accounting Agency. So in 2017, Project Recover went to Hanta Bay and they use remote sensing vehicles, an autonomous underwater vehicle that has a side scan uh, sonar in it. And they did a scan of the bay looking for this wreck and actually several others that are out there. On the last day they were out there, they actually found wreckage and could identify wreckage consistent with the B-24. Greg's job is to find evidence from maritime wreckages and identify those on board. But in this case, the perilous environment around PNG's Madang province made that task hard. So then in 2019, in November, DPA sent a team out to do an investigation on the site. About three days into the investigation, there is a volcano approximately seven kilometres outside of the bay and the volcano erupted. So we actually had to pull the divers out of the water quickly and leave the area because it was a full magma ash displacement event. The COVID-19 pandemic meant it would be three years before the recovery effort could be resumed. Teaming up with elite divers from the US Navy, plans were laid yet again to gather the evidence they needed. We did 30 actual days of diving, saturation diving. We did two teams, split it almost half and half. So each of the teams was six divers inside the saturation habitat, which is where they lived. And then each day, in the mornings, they'd get up and three of the divers would take a dive bell from the habitat. The habitat was on the vessel with us, but it was pressurized so that that's how the divers could get out in the water and work for four hours at a time. So a typical day was three divers went down in the diving bell. Two of the divers got out of the bell and worked, and one acted as a safety diver that stayed in the bell the whole time. So the typical work day was about four hours. Then it take about an hour and a half to take the bell back up, swap crews, put 
the bell back down and then three new divers are on the bottom working for another four hours. A dive bell is a specialised chamber, similar to a space capsule you might find in a science fiction film. It transports divers to the wreckage. Once there, the divers were confronted with the massive task of collecting evidence and hauling it 200 feet to the surface. So normally we don't go deeper than 120. So for these guys to be able to come in and do an entire mission, and especially a successful mission such as this at 220 feet, is it's a very amazing for DPAA, and it opens up our researchers to now be able to look at other cases that are deeper. U.S. data states there are approximately 81,000 missing U.S. servicemen still scattered around the world, including in the Pacific Ocean. Mrs. Stratton says most will never be found. We think that there's about 38,000 recoverable of those service members. And that's what we go out looking for is our recoverable. And the entire process could take five, six years from investigation all the way through to recovery to making an identification. We do a very thorough job of researching first before we go out anywhere. Then we do our excavations. And some of the excavation sites could take multiple times to excavating a site to its archaeological extents. We want to make sure we've covered so that when we go talk to the families that we've done our best that we can to bring home everything possible to the family to help make an identification. In the case of the Heaven Can Wait crew, Mr Stratton is hopeful they've gathered enough evidence to positively identify all members of the crew on board. It was a crew of 10 and the the same crew had been together almost a year and a half. But on that mission, they had a photographer added. So that was the 11th crew member that day is a, a photographer and you know a full photo kit to document the mission that they were on. We actually analyzed every single piece in the lab under very specific conditions and tried to determine exactly what they are, whether it is biological, whether it's non-biological, uh, whether the non-biological was part of a crew member's personal gear, was a part of the aircraft. Everything is done in the lab. All the analysis is done when we get home. It's long, taxing work, and Mr Stratton says it might take decades to bring closure to all the families with missing ancestors. But he also says it's deeply rewarding. It's a great thing that we could do, and we look into the future and we see a successful mission such as this. Divers can now open us up to depths we haven't looked before. So we can open up to even more families than we've already had made identifications from and now have that hope that we could find their loved ones also. And that's that's what it's all about. That was underwater archaeologist Greg Stratton from United States Defence, speaking there to reporter Kyle Evans. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Priyanka Srinivasan. How much is your love worth? Well, some scammers in Kiribati are putting that question to the test. Banks there are warning of so-called romance scams, where, where victims are conned into letting strangers not only into their hearts, but also into their bank accounts. To find out more about the scams and uh, how to stop them, we're joined by Sarah Stubbings on the line from Vanuatu. She's ANZ's regional executive for the Pacific. Good morning to you, Sarah. Good morning, Priyanka. How are you? Yes, very well, thank you. And um, I haven't been caught up in a scam myself, but I'm certainly worried about hearing um, of these romance scams. Can you explain um, exactly how scammers are targeting people in Kiribati? Yeah, absolutely. And look, this was um, brought to our, our attention by one of our customers who really had been the victim of one of a classic romance scam and which sort of included ultimately promises of, of her actually receiving some funds further down the track as well. So 
she came into the bank and let us know. And um, we obviously did quite a bit of investigation and identified a, a small group of other customers who looked to be victims of the same or sort of a very similar scam. And it involved, um, you know, these customers being, they'd been reached out to by sort of social media, via Facebook or Messenger, um, and ultimately resulted in them, you know, acting on instructions from, from someone they'd never met mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and funds leaving their accounts. Um, so really, really sad sort of circumstances. And these people tend to prey on people's vulnerabilities and generosity. So um, as soon as we found out, um, you know, we uh, alerted the government, put out a media release just to make people aware of this. We didn't want anyone else to fall victim to these scams Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, are working uh, to try and uh, recover the funds to the extent we can. Oh, dear. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it must be devastating for the people involved, particularly because it, this is, I guess, people they meet online, as you said, Sarah, are they, are they forming, yes. are they forming sort of relationships with them online um, and then being asked to deposit money, perhaps? Yeah, look, that tends to be how a typical sort of romance scam, you know, happens. You know, they'll reach out via sort of social media. They'll use a fake sort of profile. Um, You know, they'll try and get very close to the person relatively quickly. They'll share a lot of sort of personal information about themselves, start professing, you know, undying love, you know, pretty quickly. And, um, you know, that follows soon after usually with um, requests for funds. And that might be to either help them travel to meet the person or they might have a sick relative or, you know, it could be something along those lines or it might be actually just information about the person that would ultimately uh, mean they could, you know, use their identity to access their funds in in some sort of way. So, yeah, really, really sad set of circumstances. Oh, dear. And and how much money are, are people losing through these sort of scams? Oh, look, I mean, I don't have the actual numbers in front of me, but, you know, the, the, these sort of scams, you know, not only obviously impact uh, people in Kiribati, but all over the world. Mm-hmm. And um, scammers tend to target people of, you know, all ages, races, you know, religions, income levels, and, you know, and it can be very material for, um, you know, for, for people, particularly people in Kiribati who, you know, are on relatively low income levels. Mm-hmm. Yes, like I said, it must be devastating. I mean, you said it it attacks people around the world. I know so many scams and so many friends who fall into scams as well. Um, Luckily, I haven't lost money yet, but I have have lost some precious things online, you know, like documents and stuff that have fallen to ransomware. Um, Can people recover their money once it's gone? Are they able to go go to banks like ANZ and say, you know, I've lost this money from, from scams? Can you do something? Look, look, we try very hard to. Um, I mean, that's part of the challenge is, is, you know, these scammers are, are pretty smart. And so they will try to get money out of the traditional banking system as quickly as they can. So often they'll um, use things like gift cards or cryptocurrency or, um, you know, money transfers. And so once money moves into that sort of sphere, it's very hard to then get that money back. But, you know, if it's between an ANZ to ANZ type of account or within, the, within sort of the broader banking system, you've got obviously a much better chance of uh, still being able to sort of access or freeze those funds. Uh, but once it leaves the banking system, it becomes very, very difficult. The other thing that obviously we we do as soon as we identify these scams, similar to what we saw in Kiribati, um, mm. 
you know, we try and, you know, make, get that into the public domain and um, also alert the government and the, the other participants in the banking sector so people are, are on alert and, you know, we can try and shut these things down as soon as we can. Yes, as you said, that, that's what happened here. Um, in fact, we at Pacific Beat came across the media release on the um, Kiribati yes. government uh, website, which is why we got in touch. Uh, if you are yeah. just tuning in to Pacific Beat, we're joined by Sarah Stubbings. Uh, she's ANZ's regional executive for the Pacific. You're based there in Vanuatu, Sarah. And we're talking about that romance scam that you know, Kiribati yes. government and, and you at uh, ANZ have put out an alert about. Um, so this is the romance scam that where people are conning others um, to get money out of them. Do we know where these people are from, where these scammers are from? Who are they? Uh, look, I think in this particular situation, it looked to be, you know, the money ultimately looked to be sort of being accessed in Indonesia and um, in Turkey, actually. Oh. So whether ultimately that's where the scam was perpetrated from or that just happened to be one of the bank uh, accounts in a chain of bank accounts, but... You know, that's where we were able to see in this situation those um, some of those funds were flowing. And, um, you know, you mentioned this is a problem that affects people around the world. Are we noticing it crop up in other Pacific countries as well? Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, as you can imagine, it's one of those things that's quite hard to get statistics on in mm. terms of the, uh, the, uh, the levels of, you know, scammers and the amount of money that's been taken out of the sort of the, you know, of people in the Pacific. But... You know, the Pacific is obviously part of, you know, what, what's playing out in the broader world. And, you know, we certainly have better statistics of what's happening in Australia. And, you know, the Pacific is not immune to that. And, um, you know, as I said, as soon as we become aware, we, we work, uh, you know, with all parties across the system to try and, uh, you know, minimise the impact of it because, you know, people on, in the Pacific are off, often on lower income levels and, and the impact of them can be very material. Yes, yeah. And even that feeling that someone has conned you into giving over your money, I, I would I would be annoyed if it was $1 or $100. Oh, it's a terrible, <laughs> terrible, terrible feeling. And, um, yeah, and just worrying about what that means in terms of, you know, you know particularly if you've handed over personal information, what mm. might happen to that. So, you know, taking back control of that's really important. Now, you mentioned Australia there and actually, recently, I believe just a couple of days ago, said it would launch an anti-scam centre here to help combat scams and online fraud, help recover some of that money as well. Could this help stop scams in the region as well, particularly seeing as ANZ is an Australian bank as well? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the benefits of being ANZ in the Pacific is that, you know, our home countries are obviously Australia and New Zealand. So we benefit so much from, you know, the knowledge and experience and data capability and sophistication, I guess, in terms of trying to deal into these scams. So, you know, we'll be looking to learn and see, you know, what can be utilised in the Pacific because, yeah, that will be really important for us. So, you know, I really applaud the Australian government and the moves they are trying to make and the money they're investing. You know, I think that's a that's really positive, not just for Australia. We will certainly be looking to leverage that as much as we can in the Pacific as well. Mm. And um, do you have any tips for us, Sarah? Is there anything that we can do to try and protect ourselves from scammers? 
Yeah, look, I think the most important thing is never hand over your personal information, you know, whether that's bank account details, pins, you know, customer accounts, um, you know, or personal information that may enable someone to identify you. And, um, you know, just be really conscious of that. You know, if people are creating a false sense of urgency around something or, you know, purporting to be a bank, wanting you to sort of disclose your PIN number. Like, a bank just would never do that, you know. So just be really conscious um, of that sort of behaviour. And particularly if you're being asked to transfer money, um, you know, outside of t- traditional banking sort of means into like a gift card or a cryptocurrency or you know, a bank in a, an unusual place, then, you know, those are pretty obvious warning signs. And particularly for romance scams, you know, um, yeah, when, when people sort of start professing their love very, very quickly, you know, are not coming on camera, things in their profile t- t- tend to be different from what they're actually saying to you in person. And there always seems to be a reason why they can't actually meet in person, you know, those are pretty, you know, pretty clear warning signs and things to look out for. Yes, some red flags. Well, I didn't realise, like, personal information, even your birth date can be used sometimes to um, get information and, and hack into some of your accounts if you use that as one of your verifications. So um, it's always important to just be very, very careful with who you share your yes. information with, isn't it, Sarah? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, that's a very good point. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Hopefully um, we've prevented some more people from getting scammed particularly these romance scams or any sort of scam online. Uh, thank you so much, Sarah, for chatting to us about, about this and what ANZ is doing to try and uh, combat the situation. Great. Thanks so much, Priyanka. Nice to talk to you. That was Sarah Stubbings on the line from Vanuatu, ANZ's regional executive for the Pacific. We were speaking there about so-called romance scams hitting people in Kiribati. Celebrate the pride of the Pacific. You know, we're proud of our country and our heritage. Stay up to date with all the latest sporting news. So emotional every time we go out there and you see the, you know, the national anthem. And hear inspiring stories from some of the Pacific's finest athletes. I've grown so much confidence within myself and I never thought I would be the player that I am today. Watch That Pacific Sports Show Wednesday nights at 7 PNG time on ABC Australia. And that just about brings us to the end of Pacific Beat uh, today for your Wednesday morning. Just a reminder, if you are just tuning in, this today on the show we heard from Vanuatu's Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsakau. He's uh, thrown aside accusations that he's undermining the country's independence uh, in the lead-up to a motion of no confidence against him. Um, there's been criticism around, some say, his signing of a security pact with Australia. It's business as usual. There hasn't been any, uh, uh, even the slightest impression that we're being uh, sabotaged or taken over by, uh, you know, partners from overseas. And uh, that motion of no confidence against the PM will be debated on Friday. We also went to Timor Leste earlier in the show, where the national election is coming up on Wednesday Sunday, and we heard what issues are shaping the decisions of voters, particularly uh, some new voters who are voting for the first time since independence 20 years ago. Since the country became a sovereign nation, there's been a big population boom. So there is a large uh, number of young people in the country. Mm. It will be the first time that people who were born post-independence will be able to vote. And we'll be hearing more from Marion Farr there in uh, Timor-Leste throughout the week. 
That's the end for Pacific Beach this Wednesday morning. I'll be back same time tomorrow, 6 a.m. PNG time. Until then, have a lovely day.